40. This is going to be test two. We're going to see how well this goes. The Industrial Revolution begins in England, but it spreads throughout Europe, America, and finally the world. Due to the Industrial Revolution, Europeans, and eventually most of the world, changed from a rural agricultural society to one that subsists on urban manufacturing and lives in cities. England gets the Industrial Revolution first for a variety of reasons. Her social structure supported innovation and economic growth. Labor was valued. Charles Darwin stated that, quote, a man who dares to waste one hour of time has not discovered the value of life. As I mentioned when we spoke about uh, Calvinism, this is the uh, Protestant work ethic. Primogenitor, the giving the estates to the oldest son, meant that younger sons had to seek their own fortune. James Kay was the fifth son out of ten children, and he inherited only 40 pounds at the age of 21. Younger sons were also able to get loans from their wealthy families, but they basically had to make their own way in the world. Another thing was that the religious dissenters, Calvinists, Quakers, Baptists, Methodists, Unitarians, people who did not feel comfortable in the Anglican Church, were denied careers, as we saw after the Glorious Revolution, in government and, and of course, the Anglican Church. So they had to turn to business. A tiny number of Quaker families, such as the Lloyds and the Cadburys of candy fame, became big names in banking and business. There were also geographic advantages that England possessed. Southern England was agriculturally rich. Northern England was rich in coal and iron. There are almost 1,500 rivers and many streams in England. It's an island country, so travel by water was more economical than by land. Adam Smith once estimated that eight men sailing a ship between Edinburgh and London could transport the same amount of goods that would take 50 wagons pulled by 400 horses and controlled by 100 men. This familiarity with water travel meant that by 1850, there were going to be more than 4,000 miles of canals, most of them built during the canal mania of the 1800s. There was always water in England. They get 156 days of rain on the average. And this is going to work out not only to supply all these rivers and streams, but is going to provide a very damp climate, which is going to help in the production of cotton uh, spinning. England also had government advantages. They had a strong monarchy. Merchants used the same money. There was a uniform system of weights and measures. The English common law protected merchants, investors, and the wealthy. Government was very influenced by the rich, as we saw when we looked at Parliament. Government was dominated by the nobility and the wealthy middle class in the form of people who sat in Parliament. English government did not interfere with the economy. Rather, it helped it. The government's control of England's money 
with with their uh, banks resulted in a safe place to keep extra money, which banks can then turn around and loan out at very low interest rates, which businessmen are going to take advantage of. The population was also uh, helpful to the development of the Industrial Revolution. There is a population explosion in the late 18th century. Between 1701 and 1751, the English population increases by 14%. Between 1751 and 1801, another 50 years, it increased by 50%. And another 50 years, 1801 to 1851, the population increases by 100%. Why? Well, first off, the average English woman was getting married. Before the 1700s, 15% of English women remained single. That drops now to 7%. They were also marrying two to three years younger. Combining marriage, the high rate of marriage, with getting married earlier meant you had more children. There was also, however, a significant uh, lowering of the death rate. And this is the part of my lecture that I like to call the potato is your friend. As we saw when we spoke about the French Revolution, the poor women of Paris marched to Versailles to demand that Louis XVI promise to open the royal granaries to ensure that there would be bread during the winter. However, by the mid-1700s, late 1700s, the poor had switched in England from a diet of bread to one of potato. One potato equals two slices of bread nutritionally. The potato also gives you better muscle, something bread does not do. You want to build up muscle? Eat meat. Eat beef. Don't have meat? Then drink milk, lots of milk. But finally, the third most popular way of building muscle is eating potatoes. Another thing which decreased the death rate was the fact that we are now inoculating against smallpox. Yearly, 400,000 people caught, caught smallpox. 20 of 60% of those who got infected died. 80%, however, of infected children died. This is what I like to call the good old days. Of those who caught smallpox, 33%, if they survived, were often blinded. Smallpox attacked every social class. We saw that Louis XV died. In one week, Louis XIV lost his son, his grandson, and his oldest great-grandson. With Edmund Jenner's inoculation of smallpox, 80% of those children are now going to live to adulthood, which means that 80% of those children are going to produce even more children. So the population of England is going to be expanding at a yearly rate of 1.5%. The other thing which helped longevity was improved food production. There is now planting of turnips and clover, due, in fact, 
to the interest that people had during the Enlightenment of trying to work out better crops, better ways of living. Turnip and clover increases the nitrogen content of soil. It can also be fed to animals. The more animals that survive the winter, the more animals you have in the spring. The nitrogen content of turnips and clover make the soil fertile. So does manure. Prior to this, you had a three-crop system. And what that meant was that Europeans had traditionally, since the Middle Ages, planted three fields and left one field bare with no planting at all. And each year, they would rotate that field. That year of not being planted meant that the soil had time to replenish itself. But now with turnips, clover, and all that manure, don't forget the manure, you now had the ability to farm four fields, which meant you got a 10 to 25% higher yield of food. You could use less land, but you would get more crops. There was an also an interest in breeding animals for more meat, larger animals. Uh, my favorite, of course, is Reverend John Russell, who loves fox hunting more than he likes being a clergyman, and he breeds a special white terrier to differentiate it from the red foxes that it's going after, and also to be able to see it in a field from far away. This is going to become the famous Jack Russell Terrier. And I still believe that if you could harness the, pro the power of Jack Russells, the energy that they have, you wouldn't need steam. You wouldn't need nuclear power. You'd have Jack Russell power. Another thing which helps the uh, uh, farming is enclosure. Enclosure is basically taking a variety of fields and putting them under one person's authority. And enclosed land was twice as valuable, sold for a higher price, which could be recouped by increased food surpluses and higher rents. Unfortunately, the people that were enclosing the lands were the very wealthy. Poor farmers lost 30% of their farms to, land, to, to enclosure. In the Scottish Highlands, Landlords found that raising sheep on these lands was much more profitable than growing oats. In 1750, the average yield per acre for English wheat was 15 bushels. By 1850, the average yield per acre was 27 bushels, almost double. What this meant was that you could farm and get more crops with less people. So, unfortunately, we see a huge group of landless laborers being kicked off the land by the wealthy. By 1810, 95% of all the land in England was owned by 2,000 families. This was the same classes that controlled Parliament, especially the House of Lords. And they ensured that the laws that were passed were in their favor. What did all these people who had been kicked off the land do? They migrated to cities and towns looking for work. And fortunately, this is going to dovetail very nicely with the factories in these towns needing laborers. 
1750, eight out of 10 people are gonna live on farms. Only 15% of the population lives in the cities. But by 1850, five out of 10 people are going to live on farms. That by 1900 is going to increase to 85% of the people who are going to be living in cities. Another thing which helped the Industrial Revolution in England was the fact that, the, that there was a great deal of scientific enthusiasm. Particularly, there were amateur scientists who welcomed new innovations and new inventions. For example, Thomas Savory shows off his new steam engine to the Royal Society, describing it as the miner's friend. These groups, such as the Royal Society, awarded monetary prizes. So too did Parliament. In 1800, Edmund Cartwright gets a grant from Parliament of 10,000 pounds for his invention. Much of this was due to the fact that the Enlightenment had changed the way people thought. They were constantly questioning. They were not accepting the fact that this was the way everything had been done for thousands of years. They were saying, well, can we do it better? By the late 1700s, England was the world's leading colonial power. England's colonies stretched from across the Atlantic. At that time, they still owned the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. They also had holdings in East and South Africa, the Middle East, Egypt, and the Far East with India, China, and Australia. It could truly be said that the sun never set on the British Isles because God didn't trust them in the dark. A lot of these places were temperate climates and the production of cotton, which was being imported from India. English people loved cotton compared to the heavy wool. It was lightweight. It was easily washed. Cotton could be dyed. It was much more comfortable to wear cotton in the summer than it was in the, in the uh, uh, than, than wearing wool. At first, cotton producers faced tons of obstacles, especially in terms of bottlenecks at various stages of production. The first bottleneck was weaving, but then in 1733, James Kay invents the flying shuttle, which allowed one weaver to weave wider fabrics, which meant that he could cut his labor force by half. Then, with that blockage taken care of, spinning became the holdup. Enter James Hargraves, who in 1764 invents the spinning jenny. Jenny means engine in Lancashire, which is a province of England, slang. What the spinning jenny actually meant, though, was that one worker could spin eight spindles of thread at a time. So each jenny produced up to 120 spools of thread. It had taken a hand spinner a thousand hours to produce 22 pounds of cotton yarn. The spinning jenny produced the same amount in 400 hours. Richard Arkwright in 1771 builds the first water-powered cotton spinning mill. Initially, he employs 200 workers and the mill ran day and night. It was divided into two 
12-hour work shifts. By 1789, his mill employed 1,150 workers, of which two-thirds were children. Samuel Cropton, between 1771 and 1779, invents the spinning mule, which spun 1,320 spools of thread. And Edmund Cartwright, who we mentioned earlier, in 1785, invents a power loom which used water power to weave. This totally replaced Kay's flying shuttle. So by 1830, you could produce 22 pounds of cotton yarn in 20 hours. In the 1980s, by the way, it takes less than an hour to produce that. But by 1850, there were over 260,000 power looms in England, powered most, mostly by water. Another thing which helped cotton was the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin in 1794. Legend has it that Eli Whitney, who was a teacher, had been hired uh, by a southern plantation owner to tutor the plantation owner's children. One night after work, uh, Whitney is sitting on the front porch as the plantation wife is combing her daughter's hair. And supposedly, she said to Eli Whitney, Mr. Whitney, if I could just comb the seeds out of cotton the way I comb my little daughter's hair. Well, a little candlelight went on in Whitney's head. And before you know it, he had come up with a cotton gin or engine. This gin cleaned 50 pounds of cotton a day. What used to take one person 10 hours to do one pound, now the gin was doing in one day 50 pounds. In 1830, 750,000 bales of cotton were produced. By 1850, the American South was producing 3 million bales. As a result, England in the 1770s had only imported less than 8 million pounds of cotton. By the 1790s, they were importing 37 million pounds. By 1815, 100 million pounds of cotton came into England. And by 1830, England bought 250 million pounds of U.S. cotton a year. Ironically, this is going to do two things. One, the slave uh, slavery, the issue of slavery in the United States, which had been dying out. Tobacco was a dead crop. Cotton, really, with all the amount of work that you had to do with it, eh, people were actually turning away from it. But with Eli Whitney's cotton gin, cotton became king. The other thing was that the fact that since England was buying more than 250 million pounds, the American South believed that during the Civil War, they were going to get the support of England. Unfortunately for them, the English had Egypt. So, rather than help out the Southerners, they turned around and began importing their own cotton from Egypt. There were also innovations in power during the Industrial Revolution. The three old sources of power, wind, animal or human muscle power, and water are going to be replaced. Until the 18th century, wood was also the primary source of energy. 
but coal produces three times more energy than wood. Human muscle power, the average man, working as hard as possible, only produces one-tenth horsepower. The horse itself only produces half a horsepower. But steam is what is going to make the Industrial Revolution. James Watt's steam engine was originally designed to take water out of the mines, but quickly came to power textile mills, railroads, and boats. One of the major problems with coal mining was that coal was no longer to be found on the surface. During the time of Roman occupation of England, you could literally stumble over coal right lying on the top of the ground. But by the 1700s, you had to dig down deeper and deeper to find coal. Unfortunately, when you dig into the ground, you generally run into water about 30 feet down. At that point, 30 feet down, the amount of water and the speed with which it flows meant that miners could and often did drown. Men and horses could not pump the water out fast enough. This changes with Thomas Savory's steam engine. It was a, certainly an improvement over our using horses or using men, but the Savory steam engine had many problems. It was very, very heavy, but it didn't put out that much power, and it still used large quantities of coal. Furthermore, the machine could only be installed 30 feet down in dark mines. Thomas Newcomen's engine was more advanced. He took Savory's engine and he perfected it. Newcomen's engine could be installed 100 feet down. It replaced a team of 500 horses that had been used to pump out water in one particular mine. But like Savory's engine, it was large and even more expensive than Newcomen's. James Watt took the Newcomen Savory engine and he improved it. He separated the condensation chamber from the broiler and increased the engine's power, while at the same time ensuring that that engine used less fuel. Watt's engine could also be regulated as far as speed, which was needed because factory machinery needed to operate at a constant speed. Watt's engine soon replaced the water wheel and horses as the main source of power in England. Now, you could build a factory anywhere, not just near a stream or a river. Watts's engine pumped so much water out of the mines that you could now go deeper and deeper below the ground. By 1800, more than a thousand steam engines were being used. In 1830, we now see steam applied to railroads. There are 70 miles of steel railroad tracks. By 1870, there will be 15,000 miles. In the 1830s, trains will average 30 miles an hour. Stagecoaches travel 10 miles an hour. And the average horses cover 12 to 15 miles an hour. But they can only run eight hours a day. Coal production increased. By 1700, England produced 3 million tons of coal. By 1800, they were producing 10 million tons. And by 1830, that was increased to 25 million tons of coal. That was also 75% 
of all the coal produced throughout Europe. What the Industrial Revolution did was also result in societal changes. Right off the bat, the fact that now machines were too heavy to move. Before the Industrial Revolution, clothing, furniture, and metalwork was created in people's homes by skilled workers, such as blacksmiths or furniture makers. Unspun wool, flax, or cotton was taken by small-time merchants to spinsters, and a spinster meant a young unmarried woman who spun a thread. These women were living on isolated farms, and they used the downtime that winter brought to spin wool. The money that they earned went for dowries or to help their families out, especially to keep fathers and brothers in drink. In the spring, the merchants picked up the spun threads and then took them to weavers, who also worked out of their homes. Once the weavers were done, the merchants picked the, the woven cloth up and, was, and then took it to towns so that it could be dyed and sewed into garments. The wonderful machines of Kay, Cartwright, and Arkwright were too heavy and too expensive to distribute to small farms. So workers now had to come to factories. New towns sprang up, usually in the northern part of England, because land was cheap there. It was rocky, it was hilly, it was not an agricultural paradise. Manchester is going to become the cotton capital. Liverpool will become England's second largest port and will have to wait until the swinging 60s and the British invasion to become the home of the Beatles and be actually put on the map. All of these cities, however, grew from villages into large cities very rapidly. In 1751, Manchester changes from a small market town when coal comes pouring in by a new canal. Transporting the coal by this canal lowered its cost by 50%. The same canal will begin to bring in cotton from the Liverpool Harbor, where it's going to be distributed to spinsters in the outlying farms. But as I mentioned, with Watt's steam engine, factories can now be built anywhere, and businessmen start to choose spots where there's a good supply of labor and coal. In 1772, Manchester had 25,000 people living in the city. By 1800, a little less than 25 years later, that population had grown to 95,000. The next big population jump will come when the, in 1831 when the Liverpool and Manchester Railroad becomes a reality. By 1851, there are now going to be 455,000 people living in Manchester. The rapid rise of these industrial cities brought major problems. Factory towns gained gruesome reputations for their disgusting living conditions. In Manchester, for every 250 people, there were two toilets. Only 40% 40 40 of the children lived to be five years old. And in 1842, the average farmer was living to be 38 years old. But the average factory worker lived to be 17 years old, in part because so many of the factory workers were young children who were dying. There was also division of labor. Factories widened the gender equality gap. Men became the principal wage earners, 
Men earned twice or three times what a woman earned. Men earned 10 to 15 shillings a week. A woman, at the most, earned five shillings a week. Children earned a shilling a week. Even a man's salary, however, wasn't enough to support a family. One pound of tea cost six shillings, and each person drank approximately one pound of tea a week. Wives and children had to work. This is also the beginning of a very distinct set of social classes. There had always been social classes in England, but they tended to be a very um, people at the top, and then you had the, the working classes. Now you have a, still the upper class, mostly the nobility, but you have a growing middle class, factory owners, overseers, office workers, and the still huge working class. Merit and ability are slowly going to replace birth. Social classes used to participate in communal activities. Now the middle class begins to distance itself from workers. Unlike workers with their hourly wage, the middle class received monthly or yearly wages compared to the 15 shillings a week that a worker got, a working man got, which worked out to about 10 cents an hour, a mill manager earned a thousand pounds a year, plus 3% of the profits that that factory made. The middle class also moves away from the filthy cities to detached homes on the outskirts. Respectability becomes the watchword. Respectability was tied to self-discipline which in itself was evident in three areas. No gambling, temperance, no drinking, and sex becomes slowly for, solely for procreation, not recreation. Factories also changed the way people lived. Before the Industrial Revolution, as I mentioned, most people worked in their home. There was no clock to punch. In England, Blue Mondays were very common, People drank so much after church that they were too hungover to work on Mondays. Well, factory work changes that. If you don't come in Monday, you're fired. 16-hour days, six days a week becomes the factory norm. Breakfast now becomes the most important meal of the day. Why? Because workers couldn't eat during their working day, and they came home too late and too tired to eat. Coffee becomes popular also as a quick pick-me-up and meal replacement. There was also the devaluation of traditional skills. Again, craftsmen had for centuries taken pride in their work, but in factories, it was basically work as hard, as fast as you could, turn the product out, make as much of a profit as you could, and hope like hell it fell apart and people would have to buy another one. Trade unionism, because of the unfair working conditions, trade unionism becomes very popular. But, again, the interests of the wealthy, they step in, Parliament steps in with the Combination Acts of 1799 and 1800, which would impose a two- to three-month prison sentence of hard labor on any worker caught plotting to get better wages or working conditions. 
Child labor, as mentioned, Arkwright employed close to 1,200 workers in his mill, two-thirds of them children. During the 1800s, half of all factory workers were under the age of 14. In 1819, Parliament begrudgingly passes child labor laws, which reduced the hours children could work. Now, the little beggars only have to work 12 hours a day. Needless to say, the Industrial Revolution was a major change on the European um, uh, horizon. And we're going to see how this is going to lead to further changes in the way people think.